God, how funny is this shit, man? Like fucking just coming down with it like four weeks before the election after everything, man. It's the fucking funniest thing I could think of. This like past 24 hours has been like a week worth of news. You know, like I keep oh, getting yeah. more updates and push notifications. Like, oh, Trump's feeling fine. Oh, like, you know, he's in good spirits. And then, like, he was like, oh, he's on an experimental uh, <laughs> new treatment. And I was like, all right. And he's like, he's doing well. You know, he's feeling good. Oh, he's getting hospitalized at Walter Reed. Oh, shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's just it, this news cycle from uh, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, through now has just been like, out of control. Oh, like, and it's gonna keep keep going too. Basically, till I don't know the election at least, maybe even like through it. It's just it's we're on a fucking shit right now, you know. Like if twenty twenty is just like a hellscape version of a like a roller coaster, we're at the part where it's just like upside down right now. You know what I mean? We're yeah. at the part where the coaster is doing the corkscrew upside down. <laughs> But like, like the metaphor is that we don't know if the track is fully completed if we're just gonna fly off. Mm-hmm. Could just be like roller coaster tycoon. You could just we could just end up in an empty track and you just fly off and land in the trees somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little so. fucking explosion. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. That's that is my twenty twenty take. Which is that um the only thing I'll say is this will not be the worst year of our lives. You know, things are gonna get better, things will normal out at some point, but I don't think that this is the single worst year we're going to live through. Yeah. Realistically, it's going to be sometime, you know, uh, old age isn't a guarantee. But if we make it there, you know, there could be a bleak climate, you know, landscape. This will be funny, like, if this is the lead off to the podcast, like, our listeners are listening. We're just talking about, yeah, like, climate wars or whatever in the future just due to global warming and climate change. Yeah, I guess, I guess really, you know, at this point, maybe the Republican plan is better, which is try to be the warlord in one of the climate armies instead of one of the soldiers. I think that's kind of what they're going for. So, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, it's funny. Going back to the Trump thing, you'll appreciate this. I saw something really funny. It's like, uh, it's extremely uh, comforting how the information, this slow uh, leak of information about Trump has the same like vibe as the Mets when a starter leaves with forearm sick, uh, stiffness in the second inning. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's just like, oh, he, he left. He, he's a little sore. He's icing it. He's in good spirits. He's going to be back for his next start. And then it's just like 10-day DL. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, and all right, then, you know, we're, we're going to send him out to a specialist just to be sure. going to be like rehabbing him. He's, he's going to be bouncing back after his DL stint. Tommy John, like, <laughs> yeah, it's literally, and then, like, you know, right now, the, you know, going to Walter Reed, experimental medical treatment, it's like, yeah, James, Dr. James Matthews is on his way to Baltimore or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andrews is preparing his scalpel. It's time <laughs> for, it's time for surgery. <laughs> Would it be funny if he, like, traveled with his own, like, scalpel. He had, like, go on planes and he had this little, like, briefcase full of, like, little, I don't know, little, knives that he just he needs like the same knives it's more like his home office he just has like a break in case of emergency like glass box and it's like his tommy john scalpel and whenever <laughs> they call him they're like we got another pitcher who just threw out his forearm and then he's like oh no and he just goes and he smashes the glass and grabs his scalpel and immediately heads for the airport 
there's already a car waiting for him outside. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's like, oh, the rehab from Tommy John is a year and a half. We got to get him in to do the surgery now. We can't waste any more time. <laughs> yeah. I think we got it. I think that's uh, all right. That, that was a good episode of Reeling in the Years, everyone. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the tears? Have you had enough of mine? What are you drinking, Sam? I'm drinking a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. It is the season. And you are Sam. I am Sam. And this is an Oktoberfest. It's very apt. I am drinking uh, Cast Fresh, which is Korean's number one beer, according to the uh, label here. Ah, all right. It's all right. It's a little sweet, but that's, uh, you know. Sam Oktoberfest is like a, like a staple. I've been drinking this like since shortly after I turned 21. It's a, like, if they kept this out, like, all year, I probably wouldn't drink it. But because it's seasonal and it only comes out around now, that, like, keeps it, like, so relevant at the forefront of my mind. And I was like, oh, Oktoberfest is out. I got to get the Oktoberfest, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's very just, like, you know, can only get it when it's now. Da, da, da. By limiting it, by its rarity, by making it seasonal, I think they just boost their production of it. Like, you know? Yeah, they, I mean, at this point, you know, they're big. They got bought out. Like, they have market studies and shit that, you know, none of these ideas are novel to them. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Did I tell you about how, like, when when uh, I was living in L.A. with you, how I went to do that research study for, like, different kinds of beer, and it was really Sam Adams, like, secret funding it? They're, they're like, they still call themselves the microbrew, and they are in a way, but, like, they're, they're like, in the in-between between the macro and the micro. Yeah, like AAA or something like that. Or like, you know, like on a major indie, I guess would be the right to kind of yeah, bring it back to this realm. They're nationwide. They're in Canada. I mean... That's yeah. really how you know you make it when you're in Canada. So we're, we're listening to the album Desire by Bob Dylan that came out in 1976. This is a really good album. I've, I've been getting into it. Just today, I've been really getting into it. But uh, I would have known, Sam. Like, you don't have to. You don't have to, to tell. You've been listening to it all week, like the good hosts you are. Like, it's great. And and this is one of the ones I actually was first kind of like uh, drawn to from this year. And I was just like googling stuff. It's like, oh, Desire. That's one of these big Dylan records that I'm not super familiar with. And um, it's one of the ones I think I kind of ended up loving the most. Yeah, like. When I was first getting into Dylan, like my range was like from the beginning of the career, like freewheeling through like blood on the tracks. And like Desire was just like the was just a little after was the next album after Blood on the Tracks. So I could it kinda like flew under my radar. I knew and loved one of the tracks on this album that we're gonna talk about soon. Again, uh, it won't be hard to guess which one. Yeah. But uh, but this is a great song. Uh, I was reading how this song's lyrics are written trying to find different rhymes for Mozambique. It's a, a fun lyrical exercise. I almost wanted to like, try writing in that fashion myself. Like Pick like an interesting word or country or place time like that and then start producing rhymes and, and like kind of backfilling the lyrics that way. That's not a bad way to do something like that because it's almost like you have the contours of the puzzle. You just have to be creative in finding the natural way to make them all fit. 
songwriting, especially lyric writing, like you could choose any words, and it's hard sometimes. So like when you define the parameters of like the puzzle of your lyrics, it could be fun and shaping the direction of how you write. So exercises like that are pretty cool. And you know, Dylan, he he's uh, he's always got the rhymes going. Like famous for like all his like verses doing multiple rhymes of a similar sound to a word. So this works. Yeah, it's just like right up his wheelhouse. So this album, Desire, this is like recorded in between tours with his Rolling Thunder Review Band. Like, it, this is like a really kind of cool era in, in Dylan's career in the yeah. mid-70s here. D- Dylan actually probably has more, um, like kind of, everyone talks about, you know, Bowie or Madonna or these great pop shapeshifters, but Dylan might have more faces than anyone. Like, you know, you yeah. early on he has this like, Greenwich Village kind of protest folk moves on to like first wave rock hero just like you know late 60s just counterculture icon into like the kind of like hero in exile after the motorcycle crash kind of is making his like country and Americana albums vengeance mm-hmm. in like the early 70s is like the first like legend big uh blowout um I'll keep going after we uh, get the next song yeah this next track is one more cup of coffee. Oh, the song's so good. But and, uh, and then yeah, so then then after his kind of like you know lost in the woods seventies uh, early seventies, he has his mid seventies, which I think is the second best period after his uh, you know mid sixties peak. You know his late sixties stuff, I think is pretty good too. But it's oh yeah, like, like his time in Nashville. Yeah, songs there. He changed up his famous singing voice. Everything else, he had great Nashville studio musicians backing him. Yeah, but I, I think I have this as, uh, you know, like, I might have this as, like, the fourth or fifth best film. You know, it's clearly not better than Blood on the Tracks or Blonde on Blonde or Highway 61. Or Bring It Back Home, I guess, is the other one. But, like, I think it's a good argument. Is it like this? Or is it Nashville Skyline? Or is it Time Out of Mind? Or is it, you know, Free Willing Bob Dylan? Like, those are yeah. all very different records. I think you can all make a case for being number five. Yeah, and this is still very much in, like, Dylan's very productive era. Like, the, the the face of Dylan, like, everybody thinks of his early 60s folk stuff, and then, like, his going electric stuff in the mid-60s, but he continued to put out, like, great records beyond that, like, for the next 10 years. Oh, yeah, and, like, well, uh, this... mostly great. Like I said, early 70s, there's a little bit of, uh, yeah. But, yeah, like, when this album's released, you know, he's already, like, around 35 years old. He's got married, got four kids. But he's also kind of going through a new phase of his life because his marriage is disintegrating like a year after this album would be released. Um, his wife, Sarah, would be filing for divorce. I mean, Blood in the Tracks is famously like a disintegration of marriage album. And this sort of sidesteps those emotions. Though there is the tr- the last track is sort of an ode to his wife as the marriage kind of breaks down. Yeah. It's an interesting sort of window into who Dylan was during this period. And this song is one of my just all-time favorites. Like, in terms of just being a great lyric, you know, one more cup of coffee for the road, it's it's perfect. It's, like, so simple, but it, half the story is already there. You know, it, it shows a sense of familiarity, but, you know, just wayward travelers and you know you keep moving on and there's like this kindred spirit but you have to leave and like just in this little turn of phrase you already see the full story in front of you 
and it's very literal, you know, but you can also take it on like a, a metaphorical level too, but you don't have to. And I also love these things that you can read a lot into it, but you know, if you want to have like a zero pretentious thing, you can just oh one more cup of coffee through the rope and that's a good buy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. Dylan claims he wrote this song on his 34th birthday in 1965. He was just visiting a, a famous annual Romani pilgrimage in France. So that kind of gives it that uh, Romani, uh, that kind of gypsy flavor in the, the natural minor scale that's that's running through the background of this song. Yeah, it is, does have that like just very, you're right, like the kind of like natural minor, soft, weird, cool thing going on. And it's just... A good vibe long to go with like I, I think this is this is one of Dylan's stronger songs out of outside of the sixties. I love Emmy Lou Harris duetting with him. Emmy Lou Harris. It's great that she's featured so heavily on this album. Like Dylan really uh worked with a lot of collaborators here. I heard that uh he that Eric Clapton even like attended the sessions here and he played on uh, one of the tracks. Leave it played on one further down, Romance in Durango. This current song is Oh Sister, which is also a really good duet featuring Emmy Lou Harris. Yeah, this one's just very, uh, you know... This one really has jumped out to me. Yeah, like, the other one, it's almost like she's creating, like, vibes in the chorus, and it's kind of, like, weird, just kind of, like, I don't want to say otherworldly, it's, like, Americana otherworldly, it's, like, a weird thing going on. But, like, this one is just more of a, like, you know, um... It's a little more of a showcase, you know? Yeah. So one of my favorite threads that's just weaved through this whole album is all the violin parts that are featured. And I think it's pretty cool because the violinist on this album, Scarlett Rivera, uh, Dylan was just driving, riding in a limousine around the village in New York. He just spotted her walking with her violin in the case. So he's just like, oh, a violin player, I want to talk to her. So he just stops the car, gets out and starts talking to her. They talk, you know, hit it off. And he just invites her to the studio to rehearse, to play with him. And she ends up playing with him in the Rolling Thunder Review, playing heavily on this album. Um, like if I she had been, cool. you know, crossing the street like a few seconds earlier or later, then she just misses Dylan driving by. They never meet. And then you never get this brilliant violin all through the album. Yeah, who, who is the one person that we should have uh, had our lives changed by, but we just crossed the street at the wrong time? Nicholas Cage. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> that is right. the that's, yeah. that's an actual... Remember seeing him in Little Tokyo, and he was dressed at, like, 3 in the afternoon in, like, a bright blue suit with, like, a yeah, weird group of people. Yeah, powder blue suit. Yeah. <laughs> and sunglasses. We were getting ramen. Doug Koya. <laughs> And there if was we like, had only crossed the street to talk to Nick Cage, then he would have been like, How "Fuck you!" And then the story been. would have been even better. So, yeah. <laughs> any reaction directly from Cage would have just made that story better. But yeah, as is, it's still a good story. Like we yeah, saw Cage. Like, oh, we saw a celebrity in LA. It's like, holy shit! Yeah. Got some trademark Dylan harmonica here. All right, what do you think? Should we uh, put on the the star song? Yeah, let's put on this album? This song is like amazing. 
Oh yeah, no, this song is, I mean, this is a song that probably everyone here, if you're nerdy enough to be listening to this, is, is familiar with the song. For good reason. Like, I think this might be the best, like, long story song ever written, you know? Yeah. It's like an amazing story song. It's, it's like an amazing, like, justice song. Like, it, it's more, you know, relevant now in 2020 than ever. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in some ways, too, it's like, this shit has been going on forever, of course it has, and if you pay attention to all of it, like, you know, it's not hard to figure that out, but it, it is kind of a good, like, time capsule to just show that, no, no, anyone who had any kind of sense of the world knew that this shit was going on and knew that people were getting away with it, and just no one cared or no one did anything about it, you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. just kind of shows that these going problems for... aren't new problems, they're just the same problems that never got solved. Right. They're only just in the spotlight now, but they've always been around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I never knew that story about the violin. That kind of makes the song corner white, because this is such like a... In some ways, the violin's like the lead instrument, just kind of like winding around his like melody. And this is one of Dylan's best melodies, too. Yeah. The thing, too, is there's a lot of, like, you know, improvisation and spontaneity in the recordings and these sessions. Like, like a lot of these were recorded just live and with minimal overdubs. So the violinist here is just, you know, going crazy playing what she's feeling in the moment. And it just works so well because it has the nature of like backing guitar solos, but it's, but it's a violin, the smooth sound of violin, you know, in the background, almost with that kind of fiddle tone to it. Yeah, it does kind of have that tone. And what a great chorus too, where it's like just that like big strums and then everything drops out and just, oh, so good. Yeah, like this is the story of a hurricane, story of boxer Reuben Carter. And I like how immediately like this is a great story song and then we proceed to talk a minute about everything about the story. But no, I mean, this is just like about a wrongful conviction of a, you know, heavyweight champion just because he was, you know, black in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. This song is so influential. I mean, it brought more awareness. It, like, it didn't directly help with securing Carter's release, but it brought a lot of awareness to his case, which got the wheels turning, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, hey, man, if you're going to, like, yeah, how lucky are you that you're like, you know, really, uh, you know, your big case, your big thing uh, gets, you know, in Dylan's like mid 70s form, you know, it's just like, oh shit, you know, this could have been like 80 stone and no one would have ever noticed or cared. Yeah, and the thing with this in 76 Dylan, like we've been talking about this about other artists, other well-known artists who got their start in the 60s and had been big for a while, you know, like, they all were kind of conforming with the times in 76, adding disco strings and, and ornamentation and, and all sorts of things to their production, like how Paul McCartney is doing and Paul Simon in their songs. Dylan is still kind of blazing his own path. It's like running parallel to the mainstream. Like, Yeah, you're right, because there, there are all the trends we've gone through. Usually it's like the big strings, the huge production, the kind of like doubled guitars and uh you know just like big drums or you know the four and four like disco stuff and then this is just like this has been the most un-1976 album i think we've heard yeah like this this is more kind of floating timeless like yeah 
just especially by the fact that where when I first started listening to this album, I was like, oh wow, Hurricane is on this. Like, I didn't quite know where that place of Dylan's discography. Like, oh yeah, no, and it's one of his best songs. You know, you're doing the top ten Dylan. This is on there. Yeah. All right, what's our uh, what's your next album, Sam? All right, Hurricane. It's a eight minute thirty three song opus, worth listening to the whole thing. All right, we're moving on. Our next, we're gonna switch gears and we're going to Queen. So this album is uh, I was listening to it the other day and it kind of flew through me, but there were two songs that really, really were um, great. One of them was to sing on one of those and the other one was this one. This song right here goes hard and was a song that I wasn't even super familiar with. And I'm like, holy shit, this song is so good. This song is amazing, especially because it's such a heavy rocker. Yep. These days when you think of Queen, you think of the, you know, the very elaborate production, the ornate, uh, vocal arrangements, you know, all those crazy layered harmonies. This is just a straight up blues rocker song. Yep. But it, it's so still we... very theatrical, still very, you know, it, it is no doubt a Queen song. It doesn't feel, um, you know, out of place in any way, but it, this song goes. This is a perfect opening track to the album because, you know, it announces its presence like this and just slowly builds up. You're like, oh, what is this building toward? And then when the guitar comes in, you're just like, oh man. Yeah, this is definitely one where, you know, it's a drop song. You know, before beats drop, guitars drop. Yeah. Oh, such a good riff. Then you got Freddie coming in. God, Freddie had such a good rock voice. Man, and what's funny is this is like in the middle of Queen's like classic period, like, as much as, oh, one, as much as one exists, it's maybe like, you know, it's like the mid to late 70s, like maybe sheer harder attack through the game. And yeah. this is like, um, and, and it's one of those, you know, runs that goes up there with like uh, anyone's run, you know? And um, yeah, it's kind of weird not to be familiar with uh, a record of one of these great artists and these great runs. And um, yeah, it was just kind of interesting, just like going into this thing fully formed, fully sure of itself, you know, yeah. Yeah, like, so Queen had really hit their, like, critical and commercial peak the year before in 75 with the, the Night at the Opera. I mean, that was like a late release in 75. So all through 76, like, Bohemian Rhapsody and other tracks on the album are just blowing up the charts. Bohemian Rhapsody went to number one then. And this album itself, you know, is kind of a buzzer beater for 76, released in December 76. So they, they just squeeze this one in, and these songs would go on to chart in 77. Not to equal the success necessarily of Night of the Opera, but I mean, Night of the Opera is the flagship Queen album. Yeah. I think this is a pretty worthy follow-up. No, I, I agree. Um, especially, like, man, like it has like this song has everything that Queen does. It's this big chorus that still is just like a thirteen year old to get into, but it has those enough weird musical flourishes where it doesn't feel like cheap pop, you know? 
yeah. Like, this is, this is Freddie really asserting himself as like, oh yeah, I could be a hard rocker, hard rock singer. You know, yeah. he's just, his voice is like impeccable. Yeah, I do like Queen when they're just like doing their, their at their hardest songs because, I don't know, they just have enough other stuff and enough sense of melody where never just sound big, bloated, and stupid like a lot of other hard rock in this period can, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to jump to a change of pace track. This is Gold Old Fashioned Lover Boy. Now this was a single at the time. This is a lot more theatrical queen here. Yeah. Right away you hear the difference. Freddie's there on the piano. Brilliant piano player. This is yeah, a lot this, more in the pop direction. I'm curious what you think of this track in, in comparison to Tie Your Mother Down, which is a hard rocker. I don't like it as much. I mean, maybe that's just coming from where I'm uh, coming from. Ballads, unless they really hit me. This isn't a ballad, but like the down tempo you know, stuff. It's like a, it's like a, a, a peppier, more show tune influence song. You know, this is show tuny, which is yeah. like, which is the weirdest thing about Queen is that like. The people who like Queen obviously love Queen, and it is just like very, it is show to me. And I know a lot of people who kind of only listen to musicals who love Queen, and you can kind yeah. of see why, you know? Like just everything that went into the production and arrangement of the songs, they they could easily fit in a musical. And like, oh, yeah. especially here, the, you know, the, the way the piano's playing here. No, this sounds like a different musical. layering voices harmonies yeah and, and but, all right, so here's my interesting thing about queen out of all the all-timer bands like you know the, the classics you know the top hundred people without a doubt you wouldn't even think twice that they're in there you can't say shit about these are good and i'm not even talking you know there's some people that like you know aerosmith had some this year and i'll shit all over the aerosmith any day of the week like Queen, out of all these bands that you have to like because they're good, and you don't have to like, you do clearly like, it's just right there in front of you, like, no doubt they're good. So one of the bands I've listened to the least. So it's kind of interesting yeah. going through it and figuring out why that is, you know? Like, why do I, you know, uh, rock Bowie all the time, or Dolan all the time, but not Queen, you know? I feel like a lot of people, you know, get, just getting to rock and history of rock go through like a Queen phase at some point in their lives. For me, mine was in high school. I was really big on Queen, maybe when I was 15, 16, 17. And that was like definitely the peak of my listening to them, I think. And, you know, I, I always love to go back and revisit the past. I enjoyed the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Um, I, never I don't regularly good. listen to them anymore. It is good, you know, like if you go in not expecting anything more than like a cookie cutter biopic, but it's still a fun one, you know, especially if yeah. you're a fan of the band. Fair enough. Yeah, this song is good. The song is good. Let's so get this next one. Um, I wanted to play this one because this is sort of a change of pace too. This is Brian May on lead vocals. And this is a lot more kind of 60s birds influenced. Yeah, that book right there is like fully birds. I really like this song. And it's almost like a, a sort of 
spiritual sequel to 39, which is one of my favorite Queen songs, and one of the standout tracks on the Night of the Opera, which came out the previous year. Just having uh, this break up the pace of the album with Brian singing lead vocals and playing in like a kind of Roger McGinn way with a uh, bird sound, I, I just really like it. It sounds like a late 60s kind of summer love anthem. Who is the best number two singer in rock band history? Not like a backup vocalist, but someone who will have like one song and album. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you other, you mean it. other than like a band like the Beatles where like everybody sang. Yeah, like I guess that. Harrison you might consider like, I mean, like uh, a two if McCartney and Lennon are one, one A and one B, you know? So I guess yeah. Harris would be like the North Star for like the best person on this, but someone who is like clearly not the lead singer, but definitely has some songs, you know? But puts up like, oh, the Who comes to mind when yeah, uh, Townsend, Pete Townsend sings. I love Townsend's voice, but I mean, when you're going rock, you've got to go Daltrey. No, yeah, like, it's, it's like when Daltrey's here, you can't not do it, but Townsend does have a good voice. But a song like this, this is just like right in the wheelhouse of Brian May's voice, which is a, he has a great singing voice, but it's it's not like the sheer power that Freddie has and control, you know. So it, it works with this kind of 60s folk influence. And yet this is still very much a Queen song. You hear him playing his red special guitar, uh, you know, channeled through the Deaky amp to get that unique guitar tone. Yeah, I'm still gonna like Lou Barlow and Kim Gill also come to mind as great like number twos. Oh yeah, good call. That'll be something to think about more and and <laughs> revisit maybe yeah. later this episode. All right, we're going to bounce to the star song of this album. And probably one of my favorite songs ever. This is Somebody to Love. Now this song definitely has some show tune kind of musical influence and gospel choir influence. But it's still so distinctly Queen, I think... People don't even think about the influences going into it. They just think like, oh, like oh, this is queen. the definition of queen song. Yeah. All like the stacked layered harmonies. Like there's so many vocal overdubs in this song. Like there's a hundred vocal overdubs. So like create an entire choir. And it's all just Freddie, Brian May, and Roger Taylor. Just the three of them layering their voices. Yeah, and it creates like such a distinct sound. It's almost like the um, vocal version of what Boston did with the cars on that album. Yeah, just just the way Freddie's voice, like his lead vocal, bounces back and forth with that choir. He's he's going back and forth with himself. It's so amazing. Yeah, man, the production on this part. One thing that's about listening to this whole thing is that there's all these different trends going through, you know, disco and, and all these classic rock hits and da da da. But it's interesting how the big production has been constant in. 80%, 90% of these albums. Like, these these all just sound huge and all these huge overdubs, and and it, it's pretty yeah. cross-genre, too. And it's just crazy to think about, like, this is 1976, and think about what what production was like in songs in 65 and 66. Like, in just 10 years, how, how much things had advanced, like, where all these bands were just creating these epic soundscapes like this. Yeah. Like, multiple parts in this song, you know, just veering off parts and bridges and things like this. There's so much, you know, 
power and resonant emotion in Freddie's vocal performance. I just love this song. Like, I've loved this since I was a teenager, like I said. Yeah, and then it just comes back down, and man, I... Like, have they ever made, like, a novelty Queen musical? Because they seem like a band that would... I, I guess it would be hard to write a narrative around it, just because all these songs are very... But it seems like they did the anthem Mamma Mia, you know? Yeah, there's a, uh, a We Will Rock You musical, which is also, like, a jukebox musical, kind of in the vein of Mamma Mia. It's just, like, you know, one of those things, like, it follows the plot of, like, you know, a group of people doing their thing, and then Queen's... It's all Queen songs. Gotcha. All right, so what I was uh, talking about does exist, and uh, I never heard of it. Probably it's not good. So. Oh, we gotta listen to this whole track. Like, everything is good about this song. Like, the lyrical imagery is great. I love the lyrics. Just the dynamic range, you know, uh, like how quiet it gets to how loud it gets. The the range Freddie's voice goes from like the very bottom to the very high top. Like his full three octave range is on display. Definitely. Um, I love this build up. The build up, the build up of emotion here. It's so cathartic when it finally breaks. And then you think it's done. Nope. Yes. Just still going. And this is a great outro. It's just got a nice, like, rollicking vibe to it, but it's still big and pop. Freddie just got free reign to just kind of vocally improvise here. You can hear him. You can hear how smooth his falsetto is. Yeah, it's smooth. It's like I'm just revisiting my love for the song all over again after having kind of shelled it for years unintentionally. Well, it's just a song you hear over the time. You don't need to go looking for the song. The song finds you. you know? Yeah. All right. Should we move on to our next album? Yeah. Let's move on to the real shit. Not the Queen isn't real shit. But let's move on to the real shit. <laughs> all right. So another big album from this year in the pop realm. This is not what I thought we were doing. Let's do it though. Oh, what are you thinking? No, no, no. Let's just keep going with this. This is this is definitely 1976 personified. So you know who else is big in 1976? ABBA. <laughs> Europe's finest. ABBA was already doing pretty good with their first three albums, but this one is when they just went from like, you know, that Swedish band who was charting singles to just like worldwide phenomenon. This album was gigantic all over the place, not just in North America. North America, Europe, everywhere else. And this is like the perfect example of like pop songwriting. Like the hooks of these songs are like incredible. Yeah, it's, it's like these big choruses. It's like 
it's disco, but it's not like full disco. It's more just huge, you know? Yeah. Like ABBA, by this stage, you know, they were hearing all the disco coming out of North America, and they use it to kind of like shape it and bounce it back to our side of the ocean. You know, they the Euro disco trend that was blowing up in Europe at the time. Yeah. Just the Euro disco spin. And so just, there's so much to listen to. There's so much going on in these arrangements. And, and the way um, the members of the band could just write those hooks and the way the vocals were layered to such a level just delivers such like, you know, pop power behind them. So one of my favorite things about uh, ABBA, is, about this album, is it is one of my favorite album covers of all time. Yeah, it's just the band members like on a mountaintop in front of a helicopter. Like, no, they're inside the helicopter, just standing there with like perfectly done hair, but also hair that looks a little sloppy. It's like a glass helicopter. It looks, I can't tell if it's either really nice or really shitty. It's just like yeah. very stupid, but very perfect. You know, like a, a great album cover doesn't try too hard. If everything's trying to do this weird art thing, those are sometimes the worst album covers. Like, I think it really just, I can't even articulate the vibe of it. I guess they're like, hey, we're these big pop stars. Hey, thematically, this isn't going to be more intense than Arrival and we're arriving, but fuck it, you're going to dance. You know? It's we're like, arriving. We're arriving in a helicopter. Yeah. It's funny because like at first glance on the album cover, I was like, oh, they're outside. And now I'm like, oh no, it's just a clear cockpit. <laughs> they're inside the helicopter. Yeah. But no, I mean, that's kind of, you, you remember the helicopter just for not even like, you know, I had to pull it up. You like, it, it's distinctive enough for you remember that helicopter, even though I know that this is not one of the albums that you're going to like, you know, be listening to on your deathbed, you know, it's still in there. Yeah, I remember the, the cover. I'm looking at it now. Yeah, this is, this is a great album cover. I love to, this is a weird thing to love, but I love the helicopter just a little off center. Like it's just not, yes. it's not like a perfectly staged photo. It's like they shot them in a the helicopter. Like this looks great. It's just like, it's just like, oh, I don't, hey, let's do the helicopter thing. They took two photos. Yeah, it looks good. You know? Yeah. But you're right. If it was perfectly staged, it would look corny. Like if it was too nice, them in a helicopter would be the most eye rolling fucking bullshit in the world. Yeah. Like th this has like, like a Polaroid quality to it, the album cover, you know, like the the sky, dark clouds in the background, and then like the the field and everything else. Like, I agree, one hundred percent. It does feel like a stage Polaroid, which is a hard vibe to do. Maybe one of our side lists at the end of '76, we could rank our um, favorite album covers too. All right. Well, there's only one that has Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, on it. So already know my number one. Yeah. So that song, Knowing Me, Knowing You, was just like one of my favorite tracks on the album. That was like the, the pop hooks in that. You know me, I'm like such a sucker for just pop confection. And that was just hitting me. This is another single from the album. This is Money, Money, Money. <laughs> such a, I don't know. For some reason, I'm like, it's such like a 70s song title. It is. Money, money, money. So Europe. Yeah. So it will probably not surprise you to know that I am a... Uh, not the biggest fan of the sound. I, I think it, it, you know, we've established that uh, in the terms of things, there's schmaltz factor, and I sometimes buy into the schmaltz because I love melodies, pop melodies, but I think this is just too schmaltz on your end, right? Yep. 
And 76 doesn't have a lot of the stuff that I'll like and you all. So, you know, we get into the, you know, early 90s or so or late 80s. And there, there'll, there'll be there'll be plenty of shit that you're just like, yeah, this sucks. And I'll be like, no. <laughs> but like, I don't know, like, obviously the big single is, you know, like, I think I used this metaphor last time in Kansas, basically like, you know, the band you either that that you know it's it's that baseball team you hate you hate them you hate what them are about but they hit the home run that goes 480 feet and you're like you can't not say it's a home run that went 480 feet you know and, oh absolutely and that's like this song i'm just like wow this is schmaltzy the melody isn't good enough to make up for it i mean it's fine but it's just like it's dancey but it, it's not it's soulless or something so fancy so it, it's kind of like i don't know you know you know i'm with you on this one like this track i'm not that much of a fan of it like this one just isn't grabbing me like knowing me knowing you knowing me knowing you was just like my jam this is you're right this feels soulless of course the topic is about like money which is soulless to begin with but like everything backing it seems to reinforce that the, there's not a lot of heart in this song you know yeah it's, it's all pleasant sounding pop harmonies and I'm gonna play one more before the big the big track this this is like the metaphorical loading the bases before the grand slam happens so this is one more single for the album of Fernando this is a ballad so you're <laughs> you, yeah, you like this really even good. less but I I love this kind of ethereal backing as it takes off. God, it's like all the pollutedness of Jethro Tull with none of the, I don't know what, well. This is Fernando, and it's very much a 70s ballad. I, I bet this makes you feel the same way that Barry Manilow song did, we listened to a couple oh, of yeah. weeks ago. It's the same... I think you're like the antithesis of you, Jack, is just the schmaltz ballad. Yes, no, the schmaltz ballad is something that, like, you have to have a little bit of grit or unusualness or something to really get. Like, I'm not gonna say that it's never. I'm sure I listen to it. I can find one, but the schmaltz ballad is is my least favorite pop music trope. It's like. You're not a fan of ballads, you're not a fan of schmaltz. When they meet and get together, it's just like double yuck for you. Oh yeah, 100%. All right, the bases are loaded. Are we ready for a Grand Slam pop song? Yeah, one that even I can't, my dark, dead cold heart can't say does is, isn't amazing. All right, I just want, I gotta listen to a little bit of this chorus, because. God, this just sounds like you're just at like a CBS moment to kill yourself. <laughs> All right, the bases are loaded. Here's the pitch. Swing and Dancing Queen. It's one of the greatest pop songs of all time. Yeah, I mean, I hate, I hate, like, I don't like ABBA, but I'm not going to sit here and say this song isn't fucking amazing, because clearly it is. This song's iconic. I love yeah. this song. But then again, I grew up with this song. Like, my mom, my aunts, they all we're big on ABBA, especially this song. So this is just kind of blended into my childhood history. But God, you know I this, love this song. Th this has some groove to it. Like, I'm actually, like, you know, I'm 
like kind of like you know swaying a bit here in my seat where the other ones i was just stoned like a rock you know the thing is they knew they hit it big when they started recording this uh like in reading about this album um when it was first presented like uh one of the singers just kind of burst into tears at how like beautiful it was because she was just like this is gonna be so this is so good and it's gonna be like a hit and they all when they were working on it were like this is gonna be our hit it's not you know sometimes bands are like is this gonna be our big song or they're surprised by it i think all of them knew when they were working on it like this is gonna be massive and it was um in the months after the song's release it just like took over the world it went number one in so many countries yeah and it, it's just like perfect it, it's catchy it's anthemic it has a like that drum beat doesn't change it has a good thing that you can like dance to it like in a you know discotheque or whatever but also is like musically changing so you can actively listen to it at the same time it's big but doesn't feel cheap the lyrics are very universal it's like you know just it, it's about letting loose you can't just say let loose because that's stupid but it's like painting the image of this picture who is just letting loose and letting themselves just be taken over by a great pop song as a great pop song is playing. Yeah, like, this is a song, I mean, this is like a rallying cry for people just like, go out dance, you know, and have fun. I, it, it's just like, you know, pulling at their, you know, that, that need to get out and dance. And, you know, it, it, it does have schmaltz factor to it, but it just works in its favor for this song. No, it does work in its favor. I'm not like I mean I'm not anti schmaltz I just think it sounds bad unless it's done right or earned. Which of course makes me anti schmaltz But like, no, this one would be a lesser song because of schmaltz way. Right? Me schmaltz, it's part of the DNA, and I'm glad schmaltz exists so a song like this can exist. I hate that it's overused, but yeah, like I love the production of this song. Like I do too. this is the epitome of like that lush, rich, just total wall of sound of '76. Like. Everything is souped up with tons of reverb. Like, listen to how much reverb is on everything. Like, the layered vocal tracks are meticulously layered. And the drums, though, you mentioned, like, they sound great because, you know, a few years later, we'd be at the gated drums period. Like, this is a little before that, so the, the drums are such at the forefront. They're still crisp. That snare sounds good, you know, not gated at all. And it just, it works, it drives a song. It's got a danceable beat. And there's just a lot going on. 100%. And that mel like dual melodies where you have that like iconic just like a uh, little like melody line instrumental and then doing the chorus over that, just so good. That piano. The piano, those octaves, the way they resonate like you're on a, you know, like <laughs> you're in a tunnel almost. You are okay, tunnel. Jack. You ready for uh, real ready shit? for an album of uh, of some good shit? The real shit. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah. We're listening to the breakthrough of punk rock right here. First, yeah, they're like the original band that, you know, all this stuff was going to happen at once. Like, you know, CBGBs was a thing and these bands were already playing in the UK and it already was kind of like, you know, the, the first Sex Pistols single is, you know, coming out in 76. But 
this really is like the birth of it one year before it really explodes. This Ramones album is iconic. So good. Um, one of my favorite albums of the year, top to bottom. And, and um, just like perfect. Because what's happening is this is like the year of the, the, the big production we're talking about it. And you have all these sappy things, and on the singles it obviously works. Like obviously, like it wouldn't have been big if there wasn't like some sort of something behind it. But this is just like the whole idea of this is like, why the fuck do I need to be able to rip off like a you know a solo that I need to go to Juilliard for ten years in order to play like a pop song? Why do I need to spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to record it to do a pop song? Hey, it's just me. I'm gonna have three chords. And a catchy melody and this is what this has always been about every even the song like you know we're talking about dancing queen. it's that melody that people come back to like the production is obviously great and this is just like no this is all about the melody we're going to give you the melody and everything else is just dumb window dressing that doesn't even need to be there it's just like back to the basics yeah like this song just w with the start of blitzkrieg bop here by the ramones you're just kicking open the door to like the possibilities of like DIY rock and music in an era of just like painstaking, expensive, souped up, you know, production. Like it's such an it's such a fun contrast going from Arrival and and the Queen album Date the Races Before, which you know months were spent, thousands, thousands of dollars, so many overdubs, orchestras, layered vocals, and here you've got such a stripped down sound. And like, like this album was recorded in a couple days. It cost six thousand four hundred dollars to record, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, we're still listening to it. This, and again, it's just, oh yeah, that's just fucking it. And what else is so good about this too is that like, so we, we've mentioned probably Phil Spector in every episode, who is you know the originator of the Wall of Sound, basically the the kind of like big sounding production where you layer things and basically sometimes you can't even pick the instrument out you there's so much going on and all these big string parts and all these big parts are all can be traced back to Phil Spector in 76 like the peak of this but the Ramones kind of are as much Phil Spector inspired as anyone in the other way because he was all those songs were like these early 60s girls groups like Be My Baby and the Ronettes and you know you can like just go and What's the difference exactly. between this and like a Ronette song? Like instead of just singing about how you know they love the man and you know how sad they are that he's not there sometimes or whatever, it's like these are just songs about just being just kind of like I don't know. Half of them are about being like you know ironic or fuck ups, and then the other half are just about a girl in the same way. Like it's fucking perfect, you know? Yeah. Like this is like like the the stripped down like reinvention of songs from that era, like 15 years before. 100%. Like, it, the, the quality of this album is, like, is timeless. Like, everything else, especially, like, listening to Date the Races and Arrival, they're very much, you know, placed in the 1970s. And I think listening to them, you could immediately be like, oh, this is from the 70s. This Ramones album, like, could be from the 90s, early 2000s. You know, yeah, like, this, this, this sounds so much like more relevant. Like to our oh yeah, time this, this could be like with, uh, you know, like uh, I could see this being in like the pop punk in the mid '90s. I could see this kind of being with the Strokes. I could see this like, yeah, this just does. This not could be college rock in the '80s. Like, yep. 
And I love it too. These songs are just simple to their point, they're catchy. It's fucking perfect. Like, and it's cool thinking about how, like, you know, Desire, which we talked about earlier, you know, Dylan's working in the village in New York, gathering musicians together, recording. And like, you know, meanwhile in Manhattan, meanwhile at CBGB's, the Ramones are getting their start and, you know, punk is blowing up and blossoming. Yeah, like, just literally there's a lot going other, on in New York. Literally the other side of the island and the uh, short way, not the long way. Yeah. And like this would pave the way for, you know, other bands and groups are playing in that scene. Like Patti Smith was playing in this scene. Blondie was getting their start in this scene. Yeah, so uh, Patti Smith had already had her uh, breakthrough at this point. I think Horses was 75, but she was always like a yeah. little tangential. Like that's like she was in it as much as anyone, but she wasn't like um, you know like you know uh, like as kind of associated with sometimes just because of you know the nature of what she does, and, you know, compared to everyone else. Blondie's first album was 76, which is um, it's an interesting listen because it's not quite as good as what they're going to end up doing. You can like. Here, I'm trying to mix like it hit the ground running different. like the Ramones did. Yeah, like it's it, 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 you kind of see what they're trying to do, but they haven't quite fully pulled that off yet. Like, you know, Parallel Lions is coming up, and that's kind of I think the best album. Um, yeah, but like you know, Talking Head '77, you know, they're not. That's about the you know this whole thing, but this is just like the the canary in the coal mine before what's about to hit. Yeah. Man, I love it, Patty Smith and all the horses. Horses oh, is so good. Yeah, horses is so I was good. reading uh, about Desire, and Dylan went and saw Patty Smith in 75 and was like, wow, this is great. She has such great chemistry with her band. I want to make sure I have like good chemistry with my band. And that really influenced who he added into the Rolling Thunder review. He wanted to have like great band chemistry. I can see that. Yeah, Patti Smith actually had an album this year, too. I think it was Radio Ethiopia. I'm going to check that right now. But the, th- the thing about Patti Smith is that, like, after that first album, it's kind of, like, singles, hit or miss, you know? Um, Speaking of, of certain... Radio Ethiopia was 77, sorry. Speaking of certain, like, scenarios, like, like the one song no, that kicks off your recording... Yeah, Oh, what were you saying? Uh, Radio Ethiopia was 76. Oh, okay, cool. Well, that's on our radar for yeah. the next one. What were you going to say? Oh, just like thinking about like um, the very first, we talked about this in the past, but like the very first track on a ve- on an artist's very first album, like, and like when it acts as like a mission statement for like, the band or the artist like Gloria kicking off horses is just like that's like the mission statement for Patti Smith so honestly good. you talk about a mission statement uh you know what's one of the greatest side one track one album ones ever made what uh Blitzkrieg Bob yeah this one this is basically the mission statement it's like a mission said, statement just... it's just like one four five which is like the most simple obvious Thing you could possibly do just play it in the most simple way but it's like the simplicity is the point you know yeah like we were saying just kicked open the door to punk into the mainstream man and this is i was talking about the ronettes like 
This could be a 60s girl group song. Yeah. Especially those harmonies backing it too. Yep. Let's put on one more track from this album. What do you think? Let's do it. I'm gonna put on Chainsaw. Oh no. So that start. A lot of these songs just influenced by like horror movies. Like later on, I don't want to go down to the basement. Like that same kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's like, you know, Irony, which of course ends up, you know, taking over music, even not that far later. It's just like really some of the first times you can like see that too, you know? Mm-hmm. That drum beat, you know, just like a, like a metronome, <laughs> like clock, just. Man, it's funny too because like, we both are always now that I listen to the singles on it, and I think they are a singles fan at the heart, to be honest. But this whole album, beginning to end, is just fun and short and catchy and to the point and perfect. Yeah, all these songs are like two minutes long. This song's less than a minute. Like, you know, they, they make their statement and get out. Like, compared to some of these other albums we were listening to with these seven, eight minute long songs. Yeah, it's, they, uh, they, that's the famous uh, line that the most had about their songs. Is they're not short songs, they're long songs played really, really fast. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the album covers which you're doing, now this is an iconic album cover. This is iconic. This might be number one just because they're like, it's the most dorm room shit and worthy of it, you know? I'd love to like go find that wall if it still exists. <laughs> the wall they're leaning on. Probably not. I wonder, wonder where that is. All right, we're going to switch up the gears a bit. So during this time also, we're seeing sort of the early stages of the Heartland Rock movement. This is from the album Night Moves by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Rock and roll never forgets. So, you know me, like I love this Heartland Rock stuff. This is like highway music to us. This is highway music. I mean, so one, one thing I read somewhere, I forget who said this, that's really good. I think I'm talking about the Warren Drugs. Is there are these bands that a lot of music critics are like very, Urbane types, you know, very cool. And there was some music in their apartment, on the subway, walking around. But there are bands, there are albums that are just, they're, they're, the medium is to be played on the road. And I feel like this Heartland Rock really, like, this just sounds better. This song will sound better on the highway than it will in any other circumstance. Oh, yeah. I was driving today listening to this album. It was great. <laughs> yeah. So, like, Seeker had been kicking around. Yeah, I didn't know how long I, I looked into it. I didn't know he was kicking around as long as he was before he kind of broke through. I never knew that. Yeah, he had one hit in '69, and then, but nothing. He was just mostly a regional guy back when markets were still a lot more regional. So he was yep. big in Michigan. It's like, and like, especially on Ann Arbor, his hometown. But like. He had hit the mainstream, and he didn't break through until this album in 76. And by this point, he was already 31 years old. So, I think a lot of these guys, you know, they're breaking through in their early, mid-20s. You know, he's he's the example of, like, didn't get his big break till his 30s. But, like, 
the song you got to bring for it, it, it's good. Like it's, you know, we've listened to a lot of these like, you know, classic rock staples, like a, you know, like a Carry On Wayward Son or something like that. Like the Night Moves, the, the, the big song from this album, the title track is, you know, it's one of those ones where it comes on classic rock radio, you're not going to play it off no matter what. And I, I don't know if I would say that about anything we've listened to. Yeah. A lot of these songs are influenced too about his time growing up in the early 60s. Like, this is a bit of like his nostalgia album. And so you get like a, a little bit of. Yeah, keep going. Oh, you get a, li- a little bit of like the early 60s influence of his time growing up in Ann Arbor infusing this along with like the, the 70s rock traditions that are, are really forming too. So, what results well, is just like an album with kind of like widespread appeal because it's blending that 60s pop with that 70s album oriented rock that's version. That, that is 100% true. This is melding like, you know, the kind of 60s aesthetic with the 70s AOR shit that's going on right now. But, like, that is, does kind of go into one complaint I think I have about Sigur, which it does feel like a very much of a I don't know, like a regurgitation of performance. Like, this this doesn't necessarily to me say anything important about like it's not really doing it in that different of a way and it's a little more modern but like you know it's it's not just like a new take on it you know it, it does seem to be very nostalgic in tone it's just like hey I'm, I'm redoing the 60s stuff you know like and i'm doing my own stuff to it but it, the, 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 it, it seems more performative than just from the soul but he's such a good singer and has such a good vibe that it just kind of this is all performance anyways, and he's able to just sell it, you know? I don't know. He's perfected the raspy vocals, you know? Like, he's oh, got, he's so got the rasp down. But like, that's a Rock and Roll Never Forgets. That's just like about a high school reunion. Now this song, we're playing Main Street, another single from the album. This is just about, like, a street in Ann Arbor growing up. All, of, all This whole album is just very nostalgia-infused. Yeah. There was this long, lovely dance in a little club downtown. So this is the equivalent of, like, ballad for it, but this works because... Oh, no. yeah, this is so good. Like, especially that guitar in the beginning is so yearning. It's just so... Like, it's just... That guitar is saying more than anything he can say, and he's saying stuff. You know, it's not like... I'm not saying, like... But just, I love it when a guitar line can just say anything better than you could ever say it. And I think this is one of those songs. Yeah, that guitar wail. Just that kind of, that mournful, wistful wail of the guitar in that line. Love that tone. Yeah, there's like a little delay, a reverb on it. Just very, I don't know, vibes, man. Mm-hmm. And the Silver Bullet Band playing on this album, you know, he, he's got a great backing band. He also recorded some tracks with the, the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. So you get great people backing him on this. Just to watch her walk on past. So he's a Michigan rocker who just broke into the mainstream. And a lot of that, too, can be attributed to Springsteen. Uh, Seeker himself said that he was a big fan of Born to Run in 75. And it took some influences from the storytelling style of Springsteen. Oh, yeah. No, you can definitely so, see that. This is this and the other one are like very. Uh, Springsteen was here before. Like this is kind of in between his like two best albums, and like you know his shadow is kind of looming over a lot of what's going on too. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, like, my memories of, like, listening to Seeger, uh, just, like, being in the car, like, with the greatest his disc, and, like, on the cross-country road trips, just, like, listening to Seeger the Mountains, listening to him, like, crossing the desert. It's just, like, like we were saying earlier, just, like, highway music, road music, you know, that heartland rock we always gravitate to when we're, like, crossing the middle of the country. Oh, yeah, no, this is definitely, like... You know, you're driving through Ohio on a cross-country trip, like, 100%. Alright, so now, the star of this album, and one of my favorite tracks from this year. Great. Oh, yes. This is Night Moves, title track. Man, this song is so good. Like for a story song too, like, like you know, just the young teenage romance and the framing narrative too at the end, like. See, but even then, like you know, it's a story song. There's all the stuff going on, but like, it, it doesn't have the. It, I don't know why I don't like it as much as like when someone like you know Dylan does it. It just seems like yeah. it's trying a little hard, where Dylan's just very, just like his weird ramblings seem more natural. But like, God, the there is nothing more perfect than just like driving through this song, crossing a river, sunset, and you're just sitting there thinking about shit as it's going on, kind of moving out to that piece of guitar, you know? A chorus. And the piano too. Piano's a, uh, you know, underrated sixth man helping this song <laughs> oh yeah man this just this is such a good driving like that drum beat you just like are feeling it as you're going and it's building up and you're building up speed but it's such a thinking song you know like yeah like this this song induces a lot of nostalgia in me too but it, it's also just it's got like big six, uh, 70s production in kind of a different way like these harmony vocals coming in backing and they 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 just add so much good nuance in the background of this verse yeah i, I agree there is there is a lot of like it, it's good it's quiet it keeps moving it forward it's like because this whole song is about like the forward motion the energy that builds you know like i think uh like i i love this song lyrically and also musically I, this is one of my favorite tracks of 76, I think. Night this is like the song that, that really broke through uh, to the mainstream for Seeger. This was yeah. the... This is Seeger. Seeger's like big period. It's really on, like, I mean, I guess he was big for like, you know, 10 years and so starting now. But like, when you're talking about an album that actually has something to look for, it's this one and the next one. And it's just like, you know, this is, this is peak Seeger right here, you know? So you know what song had a big influence on the creation of this song? What song? Jungle Land. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Like all all of the three movements of bridged parts, you know, the, the piano and everything else, that's, uh, that's all Jungle Land influence. She's waiting on the thunder. Night Moves is such a great chorus line too. It's just like... Very evocative, just like you know, night yeah. moves. Like it's, you can just mean whatever you want it to mean. It, it more like it, it's a story, but it, it's saying something. It's like 
there's some things you can only do at night, but you have the forward motion to do them. Is it, is it sex? Is it illicit? Is it finding yourself? Obviously in the song it means something, but as just like a chorus, you can kind of make of it what you want, which I think something that a truly great song needs, you know? Yeah. God, I love this part because it's, you know, it, it slows down that backing drum beat that you were loving earlier, just goes away, goes down to the acoustic guitar. It's like waking up from the dream, like the lyrics are doing, like the reminiscence of like, oh, I'm thinking about 62, but now, you know, it's 14 years later, it's 1976. Yeah, it's like, it's like, the, like the, framing, the framing narrative of the, the story. And then it keeps going back in, yeah. I love those those backup vocals. I know it's so good. He remembers. Remembering. Oh yeah, let's close this one out. I gotta. I gotta finish listening to this end part yeah this is kind of a okay. i know we wanted to do one more but this does we're kind of going to be on like maybe an hour and five hour and ten this is such a good outro you want to you want to say this is a good place to kind of call it yeah let's call it here ah uh, let the let the sweet ending of night moves play us out yeah this is a sweet ending to play us out song play us out bob <laughs>